This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. Hello, and welcome to the Jason Kavnis Experience. I'm your host, Jason Kavnis. The Jason Kavnis Experience is brought to you by Kavnis HR. Kavnis HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Our guest today is Matt Boyer. Matt, are you ready to be great today? Yeah, absolutely. Find a parking spot first thing downtown. <laughs> Always a help. Matt Boyer is a primary founder and CEO of Zilter. Is that how you say it, Zilter? Mm-hmm. Matt is a combat veteran who joined the Army at the age of 17, graduated from West Point, and was a combat leader in Iraq and, Af- and Afghanistan. He used a job bill to gain advanced degrees in urban design and public management. After the Army in, grad- at, in graduate school, Matt led technology research for the Rand Corporation where he became known as a key expert in the practical adoption of emerging technologies to include autonomous vehicles, drones, and extended reality. He has co-authored over 20 peer-reviewed reports on these related topics. As a research leader and widely Raleigh, published author of the Rand Corporation, Matt gained and deepened the core skills for creating actionable strategy built on rigorous analysis and practical design. Building upon his experience from Rand, Matthew then went on to found Zilter a tech consulting firm that embodies the skills and values he honed from his early days in the Army. Matt, thank you for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jason, for having me and for putting this together. So, Matt, talk about some of your background. How do you get involved in all this? Like, what's your backstory? So, Jason, I'm glad you asked me that first thing, because every time I go and speak, usually the first question I get um, is people ask me, how did you get into technology? And usually what they mean by that, to be quite honest, is listening to my voice. They say, you don't sound like an engineer. You don't sound like a technologist. And so really the question is, how did you get into technology? And so for me, it started, um, like you like you mentioned up front in the bio, I joined the Army at 17. And so uh, when I got ready to join the Army, I wanted to do something sort of related to engineering. And so the recruiter in his wisdom said, you need to be a combat engineer. And I didn't know a whole lot about that. I said, it has engineering in the title? Okay. And then went off to basic training and found out pretty quickly that combat engineer is way more about combat than it is about engineering. And so really what combat engineers do is they will put in obstacles and fence lines, a lot of manual labor, like literally uh, fence lines that are half a mile long to kind of block access to people. And so that's what I learned how to do. And then about two years in, I deployed to the National Training Center in California with the Army's first mechanized brigade. It was the what they called the high technology test bed. And it was all about these new technologies. So think 1990s technologies on 1960s vehicles. And it was pretty interesting. And so one, one night we were out there and we were putting in obstacles. It was a moonless night. Um, and we worked from probably 11 o'clock at night to about four in the morning and somewhere about two 30 in the morning, uh, we were a little over halfway done. And I went and talked to my platoon sergeant, the most senior enlisted person in, in a platoon, kind of the, the man in charge, the man with the most experience and said, um, platoon sergeant, you, you know, this is some hard work. You know, what would be great is if we had a, a robot or a machine that could do this. Cause we keep doing the same thing over and over. And he said, um, Without missing a beat, he, he took a long drag of his cigarette and he said, we don't need a robot. We got Joe power. 
And I said, well, what's Joe Bauer platoon sergeant? And he took another drag and without missing a beat, he said, and I quote, Joe asked if they're working instead of down here talking to me. And so that was kind of the first interaction or intersection between hard labor and technology. When it first kind of occurred to me, there's got to be an easier way to do this. And then through various assignments, both as an enlisted soldier and officer, you just see all these roles where you're like, it's like they say, dull, dirty, dangerous. Those kind of jobs where you're like, gosh, we, we need a machine for this. And so when I moved to the Rand Corporation and started leading research, on tactical adoption of technology, that was always in the back of my mind, which is how does this enhance, change the soldier's experience and hopefully for the better. We'll go back in a, in a second, but for, for a minute, can you talk about the horrors of the National Training Center? I don't think most people know what that is, right? I was there a few times myself. Can you just talk about how, I don't say how bad the place was, it, it, it serves a purpose, right? To train you up for war, but you just talk about your experience at that place. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, so I joined the army in the mid-1990s. That was the Clinton army when really the worst thing that could happen to you is six months in Bosnia, relatively benign. And so for most of these units, the way that they had to demonstrate their proficiency is once, maybe twice a year, they would go out into the deserts of California near Death Valley. And for a, for a month, they do maneuvers. And so it's it, everything goes out there, lock, stock, and barrel. It's like a whole traveling circus comes into town you set up tents, you train, and then you go out in the desert and you just move around every day and night and, and do all these maneuvers and you're graded on them the whole time. And so it's a really big deal for commanders and the senior officers because this is what they really get graded in their career. And so everybody took it very seriously and very intense. And it's really hot during the day, probably 110 during the day. And it's, and it's cold at night because it's the desert. And so it's just a lot of hard work. And so it's, it's not combat. It's probably the closest thing you'll get in the United States in terms of the stresses that you would likely see. Obviously, you're not getting shot at, but it is, it is really just a pain, really a month-long pain out in the desert, kind of a big sandbox. I mean, when I was a listed, I was an aviation unit in Fort Hood, Texas, right? And, and our, our unit's job, we were like a, the aviation support for the whole, whole division, right? And so there was a time period, one time, where we went three out of four months, right? And we're like, are you, and the rumor was the was like volunteer volunteering us, right? So that, you know, didn't fit well, right? Of course, you know, he needs to get grid and stuff. Now I understand, but again, I was like, man, are you kidding me, right? Like, he keep on volunteering us, right? Like, and I said, you know, mm -hmm. it's a big thing. And then the enemy or adversary they have there is the actual U.S. soldiers who've been trained and equipped and have uniforms to make them look like an enemy force. But they do this, we do it once a year at the most. They do it 10 times a year. And so everything we're about to do, they've seen it done eight times previously. They know exactly what we're going to do. And so we would go through all these maneuvers, try to put up literal and figurative smoke screens and never fooled them, right? And so it was, it's always kind of this futility of I always playing against somebody who knows it, the course so much better than you do. And then afterwards, they do the AR course, they destroy you on the <laughs> yeah. AR. So I'll give you a short example of how proficient they are at this. And so usually these obstacles that we build and the adversary would build would be like a half mile wide and like a quarter mile deep. So there, there are fake mines in there. There's some fences. The whole idea is to make our tank stop so they can't get through. And so for me as a combat engineer, my job was to breach it so the tanks could get through. And so one time we started at two in the morning, drove for six hours around the mountain out there, I think just mainly to make it really long and hard. 
And then we got there. It was like seven o'clock in the morning. We found the obstacle. They pulled up, the tanks pulled up. And then they called us forward and said, okay, time to breach. So we came up and really worked hard. It took us probably 10, 15 minutes of going just as fast as you can. Cleared this lane. And as soon as we got to the end of the lane, our little, what they call whoopee light, the light on top of your vehicle that lets you know you've been shot, you know, notionally shot, goes off right in the end of it. We can't even pull out of the end of the lane. And we look behind us and there's literally a traffic jam of tanks behind. Of course. And so the enemy had seen this done so many times. They knew we don't, we'll just wait for 15 minutes. And as soon as they open it up, there's going to be about a 12 foot wide opening at the end of this. We're just going to aim it, aim it in, wait for the first vehicle. And then we're going to plug it up like you would a wine bottle. And then all the stuff's going to be stuck behind. And it worked perfectly. And so that's a lot of something like the, the army's bad at, at, at like asking, asking for help, right? So like hundreds of people, hundreds of you see in NTC, right? But I don't know the instance where like a unit to NTC, like we'll say January of you know, 1997, a unit went to right? I'm pretty sure never had never been a time when a unit asked the previous unit, can you give me some lessons? Can you give me the help, you know? Like, like, like in Korea, like the story in Korea, like we've been there 50 years, one year at a time, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Like like you are Iraq or Afghanistan, like the the S two does a brand new military challenges every single time. Country brief, and like to me, it's never made sense, right? Like doing the work over again. Someone has been through experience, ask for help, but no, no, we're hard charges. We got to do ourselves, right? That's always been like amazes me. And it changed that point during the two thousands when we were really using it to prepare for war. It became much more collaborative. But in the nineteen nineties, when there really wasn't a war to to prepare for, you really had two adversaries. One is you had the army adversary, but then you had these observer controllers. They're kind of your graders. They follow you around the battlefield in their own truck and with their literal clipboard, basically marking down everything you did wrong. And I remember when I first got there as a private, our senior enlisted uh, NCO, non-commissioned officer, pulled us aside and said, look, guys, every time they turn around for a cup of water, you need to be you need to be getting stuff done because like for us, you could only move one mine at a time. Well, to build a minefield one mine at a time would take you two days and, and there's no way you want to be out there all night. And so as soon as these, these graders would turn around then you would kick out as many mines as you could. Right. And so it was like, you were trying to game not only the adversary, but also the graders. And so it was intense and important, but it, looking back, it was kind of a joke too. Because it Everybody's wasn't playing really, the game, you yeah. know. Like that like trick was, you know, take the batteries out of your miles, you know, as long as you could, you know. I mean, like, yeah. <laughs> so it, it, the gamesmanship was hilarious, and obviously that changed after 2002 when we went back and we're trying to prepare for Iraq and Afghanistan. It was really important then. So I don't want to downplay its importance, but in the n- mid 90s, when we had no other way of grading units and, and the leaders of those units, it, it took on an uh, kind of overblown importance. One thing I think it was good for in the 90s, it, it, like, it, it taught you how to like deploy, so to speak. You know, if you're in Fort Hood, you know, gather all the tanks, gather the equipment, put on the real head. You know, I thought that was a good exercise, you know. We, yeah, and we used to do the, a lot of that. And so I was in uh, 4th Infantry Division at Fort Hood. I, actually, it was 2nd Armored Division, and then they got reflagged right after I was there, and we became 4th Infantry Division. But in the 90s, we only had really 10 divisions in the Army. And 4th Infantry was by far the last one in terms of resources. Because they were like the digitized division. Mm-hmm. The, pretty much they were like the research and uh, what, what's called research development division, you know, non-deployable division, you know. And so our, the nickname that we were given mostly by the, by the more deployable folks was No War 4. 
And that really <laughs> yeah, up. that one. We were last in personnel, last in equipment, last in everything. <laughs> and so it, it, we were testing this high-end technology, but everything else was very much kind of uh, lo-fi to the extreme. So I have two NTC stores. One, we were there one time and I went, you know, these do like ice runs every day, right? I'm doing an ice run with the, with the cooks one day. And we went to, to the, to the, what's it called? The, uh, not the cafeteria, the mess hall on Fort Irwin. Got a bunch of ice, right? And like we went straight back. It's so hot. The ice had melted to lukewarm water. I mean, and like we, like we drove around and left it in the back. We got the ice and drove straight back. It was like lukewarm water, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, there's no way to explain that, right? So we had to take the ass chewing because we didn't do the ice back, you know? And the second one, I never forget, we were is in NTC, like July 9th, 19th, whatever, no, 2 p.m., 125 degrees, however hot it was. And so we had to do a jump. Like we had to move, move from one location to the other one, right? As soon as we started moving, they hit it with gas. So we did the whole move on my four. And it was, it was a storm, sand area. It was just horrible. Like, what is this crap? So now that you say that, so two more quick vignettes that just kind of illustrate, especially if somebody's never been, just the ridiculous that is the National Training Center. So one is, um, so when I went there as an officer, we had kind of a, a mess area, a, a cooking cooking area, and they had a refrigerated truck that they kept the food in so that they could cook for us and things. And so every once in a while, they would switch out those trailers. Well, one of our soldiers went missing and they took account, where did he go? And come to find out, he had been sleeping in the back of the reefer truck because it was the only place that wasn't 120 degrees. And when they came and hooked up the reefer truck, nobody looked in the back. And so he ended up riding in the back of the reefer truck all the way back until they could figure out oh, that wow. there was somebody was back there. And then one, one other is kind of like you. I, the second time I was a staff officer and we had to give these very deliberate presentations in a tent. So kind of a uh, mismatch of conditions. And it was so hot in our air conditioner for our tent broke that we had to use the one fan that we had to keep us all cool to keep the projector cool because it was so hot that the projector would overheat. And so we were all like sweating, trying to work on our laptops with the one fan we had pointed at the projector. And so like, I think everybody who's ever went to NTC probably has a dozen of those kind of stories. And it's like, it's, it's like imposed misery intentionally, yeah. right? This I mean, is, good memories now, back then, and maybe not so much. They design it to suck, right? And if you're preparing for war, then I think it's very valuable. And like in the mid nineties though, when you were just going to, to basically demonstrate your proficiency at sucking, mm-hmm. then it was a little odd. So you enlisted for a while and talk about how you went to uh, the U.S. military uh, prep school. Yeah. So uh, actually that started even before I was a private. And so I, I, at 17, I didn't have money for college. I hadn't finished high school yet. And so the summer before my senior year went down to the recruiting station. And at that time, the Navy and Army recruiting stations there uh, had a shared waiting room. Obviously, they, something they've changed now, and you'll understand why in just a second. I went to join the Navy because I didn't, the only family member I had in the military was in the Navy. So I figured I'd go to the Navy. And so he wasn't there that day. And I was hanging out in the waiting room and the army recruiter came out and said, um, what are you here doing here? And I said, well, I'm waiting on the Navy guy. He goes, okay, that's cool. Well, you want to come hang out with me while you wait? And I was like, okay, I'm 17. I didn't know any better. And so I sat in his office and he said, have you taken the, the ASVAB test or the entry test? I said, yeah, I have. And he pulled my, my scores and he looked at him and he goes, wow, these are really good scores. You know, we had a guy from your high school that got pulled out of basic training and went to West Point with scores like this. 
Now, I don't know if he meant that or not, but I believed it. And so I joined the Army as an enlisted soldier and said, you know what? I want to go to West. And so when I got to basic training, I went and talked to the drill sergeants and said, I joined the Army so I could go to West. And they laughed at me and they go, your recruiter told you that, didn't he? I was like, yeah, yeah. They're like, well, he's full of it. Now get back to work. And so after basic training, got to a unit and then found out that, yes, the arm that West Point, in fact, does take a handful of soldiers each year to add to the core because it's kind of an essential knowledge or background that they want is that enlisted soldier perspective. And so the West Point Prep School operates now, operated then, would bring in about 250 uh, people a year and about at the end of five years, about 100 of us graduated in West Point. The attrition rate's pretty high, but it provides a venue and a vehicle to get enlisted soldiers like me who had potential but didn't really have the grades into West Point and get them through West Point. And so... From your perspective, was the was the prep school harder or the West Point harder? Uh, the West Point was definitely much harder for me personally. Um, it, prep schools like ju- basically junior college in uniforms, um, and back then it was in New Jersey, and it was uh, it was about half a not even half a mile, three eighths of a mile from a liquor store at the front gate. And so it was kind of like a junior college. It was pretty fun. And uh, we learned academic skills, but it was pretty laid back, a great way to spend my third year of being an enlisted soldier. It was definitely a shock when I went from that to within a couple of months going back to being a plebe at West Point and very much being the bottom of the pot. Okay. And I'm guessing the, the, the process to get approved for the prep school was pretty, pretty hard, wasn't it? Overall, I think it is. You have to... Um, you have to, at least then you had to take the, the SAT, do reasonably well on it, and then you had to get a commander's nomination for it and then go. And so that's what I did and that's what other people did. Now, because of that, you had people from a range of backgrounds that ironically did not know that much about West Point. I had been looking forward to it for probably three years at that point. Some folks really didn't know what they were getting into which is why the attrition rates are kind of as high as they are because a lot of people, it's their first chance to really learn about what being an officer entails, what being a cadet entails, what the experience is going to require of them. So Matt, can you talk about what is the fourth industrial revolution? Yeah, absolutely. And so, um, and, and that helps because that really moves forward to where Zilker's at now, where I'd kind of the work I'd done before the army. And so what we're seeing now with the fourth industrial revolution, Evolution is really automation of jobs. Now, it's not a new thing because if you look back, we've been pretty consistently automating jobs and functions uh, throughout the history of, of humanity. We found ways to, to automate. It's just what you see is now with the fourth industrial revolution, with AI and those type of technologies, it's really picked up speed. And so before, when you could be rel- relatively certain your career would be there uh, from beginning to end of your career, now, you, now that's not certain. And so what you're seeing with the fourth industrial revolution and this rapid adoption of automation, robotics, and uh, other forms of, of mechanization, intelligent mechanization, is that it's replacing not necessarily jobs because people's fear is it's going to take my job. It doesn't really. It takes tasks within jobs. And then it requires this resorting of the workforce. And so that's what we're seeing with the fourth industrial revolution is that as we start getting things like autonomous vehicles, uh, automated supply chains, you know, all the things that Amazon has been very good at, 
it doesn't completely replace workers, but it definitely replaces some of the functions they used to do and requires them to continually evolve over the course of their career. And people like act like this is a new thing, right? Oh, the, the robots are coming to take a job. You think about it, even back when like the, the first car came out, I'm sure people were like, oh, the horses are going away. The people make the horse saddles, they're going to lose a job. Or the people who like walk behind the horses and pick up the, 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 the horse crap, you know, they're losing a job, right? I mean, I think I could be wrong. I think the number of jobs stay the same, just the type of job change, right? And you got to be able mm-hmm. to skill up and be able to open to like learning new stuff, right? So what we've seen over time is that usually these forms of automation, unmanned vehicles, create more jobs than they than they replace or offset. The challenge is, is the new jobs created require a different set of knowledge, skills, and abilities. And I, so I'll use a quick example that everybody would get. And so look at uh, self-checkout at the grocery store. So previous to self-checkout, you had somebody there that was a checkout clerk and, and would, would swipe all of your stuff or even before that, be laid it almost by hand. And so as we moved to, uh, you know, self-checkout, then now you see one person operates four self-checkout stations usually. So what we've just done is replaced three checkout jobs. Now we created way more than three jobs to build the self-checkout, to maintain the self-checkout, to enter all the barcodes needed, to scan your vegetables. All that stuff has created way more jobs than it, than it got rid of. The challenge is the three people who lost their jobs most likely did not have the knowledge, skills, and abilities they would have needed to go get these new jobs that are created. And so the biggest concern for the United States is or should be, it's not that we're losing jobs. It's that jobs are rapidly transitioning from one side of the column, you know, to more highly skilled ones, and we don't really have the systems in place to help people make navigate from one side of that column to the other as the jobs move. Like that's a good example. Like um, I think uh, and I think every time like in 10, 50 years, it'd be like anonymous trucks, right? Like semi mm-hmm. like drivers be like anonymous trucks. And so if you're a truck driver, you're probably not even think about that. You know, it's 10, 15 years from now, but you're 25 years old now, you're a truck driver, and you get you don't get a new skill 10, 15 years, your jobs are gone, right? I mean, you had enough, you hit away, but most people don't think that like that, do they? No, not really. And so one of the challenges, so we work specifically on autonomous trucks, both for the Army and on the commercial side and talk a lot to them. One of the big struggles you have is that generally long haul truck drivers got that job, not because it was the only job, but because that job and its requirements kind of suited their personality. They like being in a truck by themselves covering long distances. And so people have said, well, as we automate trucks, then we could have those people sit in there and do other tasks while the truck's going and then check back in. And their response is, but I didn't become a truck driver to do paperwork while I'm sitting in a truck. So that's one of the challenges is helping people find valuable, both socially and personally valuable vocations that they can do as automation kind of moves forward. Yes, that's a good point. So can you talk about it? Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's, it's, it's a tech circle or adaption circle, like, you know, early adapters, laggards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, the tech adoption curve. As I said, that's it. And so you see this a lot. And so it's a general uh, idea that um, technologies generally are uh, done in stages that not everybody adopts at the same time. And so you take any technology, we even take a smartphone, that, you did, that there's going to be some, what you would call a normal distribution of adoption. And so the first quarter of that are going to be your kind of early adopters, your really trendy people. 
You know, a lot of times we refer to you know, like hipsters and people like that. Uh, I'm, I'm cool. I got the latest better version yeah. of this. I got this new tech. I'm the cool guy. Yeah. And they love it. Or part of it is finding something new. And so those are usually your early adopters. They're pretty big risk takers. They don't mind bugs and technology because they love the technology. And so they're usually first. But then that next part is what they call early, um, the early majority. And so those are usually ones who want to see some proof and some validation, but either because of business forces or personal aptitude are more willing to adopt technology into what they do. They just want to make sure it's proven as a clear uh, return on investment, those kind of things. And then you go to that next piece, which is what they call the late majority. And so those are usually people who are more risk averse, more or more constrained by their business model or something else and really need to see it proven out and pretty widespread adoption before they're willing to. And then the last curve over there are the um, what they call the laggards. And there's some people, and previously in history, they called them Luddites based on, you know, like in England when, when the Luddites uh, kind of revolted against automating mail functions. And so they, oftentimes we've referred to them that way. And so either through personal or business reasons, they're very slow and very skeptical to it. And so now what you would see with the, take the smartphone, for example, I would say that the first three of those sections have pretty well adopted that now the only people who don't have a smartphone, whether it's an app from an Apple phone or, or I mean, an iPhone or something else like an Android is really your laggards. We, that I know a few people who still have flip phones. Well, right now, that puts you kind of in that last quarter, at least when it comes to cell phone adoption or smartphone. So you're a tech company. How do you do your marketing to make sure you don't market the laggards? Like, how do you do that? Like how do you market the early, like the early adapters, early adapting majority, and not waste marketing money or energy on the laggards? Because they're not going to buy it anyway, right? So how do you figure that out? Or is there even a way to figure that out? So that's for us been very much a learning process. And I would say that when, when I first started Zilter, it was more, here's what we do well. Here's what we enjoy doing. We're going to do this for enterprise companies. And as we went out, the market, as it always does, kind of had its say and said, well, that's great. That's what you want to do. Here's what I'm willing to pay for. And so we, so we had to kind of find the intersection between what we enjoy doing and what the market needs and as evidenced by what they're willing to pay for. And so what I would say, what we've found, especially being a relatively small company that's kind of a unique mix of strategy, analysis, and design, we're not pure consulting, we're not a pure design agency, we're definitely not strategic consultants, we're kind of there in the middle, is that um, early stage companies are the most open because for the same reasons that lead them to adopt emerging technologies and build them, is that they're not so set in the way things are done now. As opposed to many enterprise companies, like Fortune 500 companies, are usually fairly risk averse. And so they want to see a capability proven out a couple of times before they're willing to adopt. It's not always the case. You definitely see exceptions. But because of the need to build internal consensus and because they're often fairly bureaucratic, and I don't mean that in a negative way, just they, they have well-established processes, they're generally slower to not only adopt technology, but also small companies, startups, growing companies that have a little bit different value proposition than they may be used to. Like in our case, in terms of consulting, like a, a Bain, a McKinsey, a PwC, somebody like that. So follow-up question, are there, are there industries out there who are like more open to taking on emerging tech? Is that like this construction 
versus like manufacturing versus restaurant versus what the case would be? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so from what we found, construction is overall, in some ways, surprisingly, pretty in, interested in adopting uh, new technology. Now, what you see in the construction world is most of the, the development projects they do already have a pro forma. So it may be a five-year project, but they've got literally an Excel spreadsheet that says, here's the cost model. And they're running pretty tight margins usually. And so for them, it has to be a very good return on investment case. So you have to be able to say, look, if you spend a million dollars on this system or this capability, it's going to save you X amount. And they really need to see that proven out. As opposed to some other industries that are more open to exploration and adopting things. So for example, the insurance industry, some of the uh, virtual reality companies we work work with the insurance companies as well or serve them. And they're usually a little more forward looking because for them, if they can offer something to clients or just show they're kind of leading the way, then it then it gives them a brand value that may not prove out in efficiency and effectiveness gains right away, but definitely makes them look better. Yeah, I would have known that I would have thought insurance would be like one of the ones like be a laggard, right? I never I would have never thought that insurance had done that. So the main reason from what I can tell, having worked with insurance companies like uh, Farmers Insurance, USAA, and others, is their workforce is so dispersed that it really forces them out of necessity to be more willing to adopt virtual technologies. Now, that's the high end of the insurance market. The low end, which would be the small shops, the, the mom and pops, uh, the ones that have one or two or three insurance companies, it's much harder, right? Because they don't have the war chest to invest in something now that may take three years to prove out. But the bigger insurance companies do, and they've been pretty good about adopting. Um, the, the technology companies usually are because they already have a culture of investment in new technologies. So Matt, on your website, there's a thing called the one minute uh, tech assessment. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that and the purpose of it? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Kind of back before that, earlier this year, we launched our Tech Strategy Toolkit. And so Tech Strategy Toolkit, what it is, is about 70, at least right now, 70 growing resources and frameworks that help people make informed decisions and execute informed analysis to kind of guide their tech development and adoption strategy. And so um, what this was intended to do is take what we've already done over time, package it in a way that makes it more accessible to people and they can use it in modules or chunks because strategic analysis has been to a great extent a black box previous to now. Somebody shows up, says, we're smart, trust us. We'll think about it for a while. We'll look at some stuff and come back to you with a report and you're going to trust us. And so the Tech Strategy Toolkit was much more of a modular way of saying, here's very specific methods and resources for what you need to do now. A little more limited so you can take bits and pieces and put them together as needed. So kind of like Lego blocks. And so the, the one minute assessment, really what it's for is to within one or two minutes, get the input from people so that we can narrow from a set of 70, like here's our whole catalog, down to here's a couple of modules in the catalog that probably suit you based on whether you're a technology builder, as in you're in probably an early stage company that's trying to get your capabilities to market, or you're a technology seeker, like enterprise or government, who's looking for technologies. And then the other pieces would be, are you focused more on new product development or operational improvement? These are the kind of questions that that two-minute assessment will ask 
and, and lets people click through quickly. So we kind of get their thumbprint, if you will, and can use that and say, okay, based on what you said, here's a smaller set that you should start start to consider that might be useful for you. So how many iterations of that did you have to go through before you got to this, this skills system here? I'm sure you, I'm sure you just didn't want to just came up with the questions. Like how many times did you have to go through the questions and like iterate through them before you got the, the, the one you have now? Easily 20 times, probably more than that. And it's still a work in progress because, you know, you get feedback from the market. You say, okay, we need to clarify that question. But really it was like, okay, what are the 10 questions we can ask and get answers to that'll most uh, kind of separate out or bifurcate this set of 70 and narrow down to ones that people need. And so, for example, I mentioned technology builders and technology seekers. Those are the two big groups that we work for and with. And so if we can very quickly put you into one of those two buckets, we can cut away probably a third of those seven. Now we're down a little further. And then, we, you know, are you looking at a new technology or are you looking at adopting an existing technology that narrows it down a little further? Are you looking at long range strategy or are you looking at immediate operational improvements? That kind of separates a little further. And so that's the intent of these questions and why it took a while to design is there, is there meant to be kind of wedge questions that allow us to put you into a group a little bit more and narrow down that set and filter down to something that should be of use to you. So here's a good one. Define what is tech. What is tech to you? In general, we've looked at technology as either hardware or software, right? It's an inanimate. Now it's become more animate with AI, but an inanimate object or good. What I would say, so that's the basic, most limited definition of what a technology is. What we do, I would say, is not so much focus on the technology, but the socio-technical system around that technology. Because going back to the fourth industrial revolution and displacement of jobs, what you see is that these technologies, you don't just give them to somebody. They really change the socio-technical system that 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 person operates within. And what I mean by socio-technical system, it has four big elements. It has the technology, like what you just asked about, whether it's hardware or software. It has tasks and processes. So what are the things people are going to use that piece of hardware or software to actually do? Then it's got the workforce itself. So who are the people? What are their knowledge, skills, and abilities that are going to use that technology to do that task? Last thing is the organizing structure. And so how is this person with their technology going to fit in this broader structure? Um, and so, for example, the, the insurance companies we talked about, their organizing structure has consistently gotten more and more uh, diverse and diffuse because they're more and more in the field. And so that impacts it as well. And all four of those elements occur within an operating environment or what we call an operating environment. And really what it means is everything that's around you that dictates how you do it. So for example, if you do a task in a clean workshop that's air conditioned or at least has a fan and has some heat, you're going to do it completely different than you would do it out on a job site that's exposed to rain, wind, and so forth. This really plays a big role in autonomous vehicles because we hear a lot about it now. And and so autonomous vehicles, uh, when you look at what it takes technologically to go down an interstate that's well-lined, very standard, you can drive from eastern Colorado to Nebraska to Iowa. And really, you you could basically on cruise control. You probably do it with your knee. Um, 
And so that's pretty easy. That operating environment is well-structured, well-defined. Whereas you take a city street in Seattle, where we're at now, especially down in Pioneer Square, you go to San Francisco, where the streets are irregular, not as well-maintained. There's, you don't have lines on the side of the road. You, the operating environment is much more complex for that technology. And this is the challenge that we sometimes overlook when it comes to automation and fourth industrial revolution technologies is they still, to some extent, need predictability around the tasks they're doing and the inputs that they're going to use to do them. And they don't adapt as well to things like the rough streets of Seattle or the rough streets of San Francisco or some other urban area or a partially maintained or an old paved road somewhere in the country. They just don't adapt to those as well. And that's where human perception is still important and valuable. Matt, talk about the importance of having an advisory board. So for us as an early stage company, an advisory board has been immensely helpful. And so um, what it's allowed us to do, and I think what it probably allows a lot of people to do, is bring people in that are in a very different circle than you are and may have access and a different view on your business and how it fits in the broader ecosystem where the opportunities may lie for it than we do. And so um, almost by definition, so if you look at social network analysis and the research around it, they say that if you want to get a job, that you, you shouldn't be connecting with your close tie friendships, the people you know best, because they know all the people you know, basically. You really want to go to your weak tie relationships, people that you know, but that really run in different circles because they're going to know a whole bunch of different opportunities you would have never saw. The same kind of concept applies to the advisory board where you really want people that have your best interest at heart, but may not be core and specific to your business because you really do want that perspective of, okay, how do you do it there? The other piece is for us and for a lot of other companies, it's been a way of getting expertise that we that we couldn't afford to pay for, at least early on, but that people will give for free as part of an advisory board all the time. So for example, uh, one of the primary members of our board is a lawyer who specializes in acquisitions and mergers and things like that and has been doing it for a long time, uh, done a lot of big deals, multi-billion dollar deals, and was willing to sit on our board, not because we could pay him, but because he personally was interested in seeing us succeed. And then we've got other people like that as well, like a, a VP from Starbucks. She sits on our advisory board. And so for, for us, it's been immensely helpful because we get this broad perspective from people who are out there every day, not directly immersed in what we do. The other, and then the flip side of that is for, for the people that have been most helpful and most happy to participate, it gives them a chance to see the startup world not having to live it every single day. They get to check in once a month or once a quarter and get to live the startup life vicariously and help us while we're doing it. The one thing I would say when it comes to, or two things, I guess, of selecting an advisory board is thinking about what are the knowledge, skills, abilities, perspectives, relationships, those kind of things that you need that you can't get access to right now or can't afford access to. That. So that would be one filtering criteria, but probably the most important is you need people on your advisory board who sincerely want to see you succeed. Because when we first started, I asked our primary board member, uh, the, the lawyer that does merger and acquisitions, a very wise gentleman, um, I asked him, hey, Todd, how much do you think I need to pay these people? And he said, listen, I wouldn't pay them anything at all right away. 
Uh, long term, when you start making money, you can do that. But right now, you want people who are deeply and sincerely invested in seeing you succeed and aren't there for money. And and most of the people who really care about you are going to be willing to do it right now to see you succeed, knowing that long term, that there will be a payback. So how did you go about picking people for advisory board? Did you, like, did you reach out to contacts you already knew or did you ask friends for like recommendations? Or, you did, or did you go on LinkedIn and search you know, marketing people? Like how do you, what's your process for that? Mostly it was people I had already known over the last three years of working and doing business. Now I did take some recommendations from people, but like I said, it has to be somebody you trust. So oftentimes it's somebody that you've met. I did reach out to a couple of people I didn't know as well. And one or two were willing to be involved and a couple more were a little more coy, which is usually their way of saying either I don't have time or it's not what I want to do. The other piece I forgot to mention a moment ago is one of the big values for advisory board members of being on advisory board is being able to network with each other. And so when you do put together your advisory board, what you got to think about is the part of the value is just they get to know each other. Like after our first advisory board meeting, one of our advisors called up because we have like uh, nine advisors called up and said, hey, can you put me in touch with Mike that was just on the call? He and I should talk about something. And they made those connections. And so we were able to bring them together and they people cross paths that never would have. So you do want diversity in your advisory board because the advisors themselves appreciate that. I also think too, if you have an advisory board, it, it tells other people that you're vetted, right? Like, like you have nine people. You, you, you tell the world, these nine people who are pretty successful believe what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think it's like a real good vetting process. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're, they really are your first brand ambassadors because if they're willing to give up their time to sit on a call and give you advice, then they've already invested themselves in your success and are pretty are going to be very happy, at least in our case, have been very happy about telling other people about it and saying, you know who you should try or you know who you should talk to or putting us in contact with other people, making connections that are just so essential when you get started. So next, let's talk about anonymous ground vehicles, unmanned aerial systems, Extended virtual reality and AI. Well, first of all, I've heard of VR, um, virtual reality, and the other reality. I've never heard of extended reality before. So, what is extended reality? So, here's here's what extended reality is really the umbrella term. So, this world is morphed. We started working with um, Tailspin Reality Labs, which is an LA-based. A virtual reality company, kind of leading the way when it comes to practical use of technology for for training and for industrial job performance, those kind of things. And so when we first were working for them, it was AR, VR, augmented reality, and virtual reality. And then people kept, kept tagging on terms of mixed reality. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not, still not 100% sure what mixed reality I guess I could look it up on the internet, but these terms keep evolving and it's all these different letters with R after them. And so extended reality has become the kind of catch-all umbrella term for the industry. And so that's what XR would be. So all this new technology, we want to say AI, VR, autonomous vehicles. What about the tech does a normal person not know about, does not get? Like how far advanced is this technology? So I think what the normal person doesn't get is how how much the technology or the peculiar limitations that this technology can have that you wouldn't expect. So for example, we see all these videos online of autonomous vehicles, autonomous trucks doing these wonderful things, which is true. They're, they're doing some pretty mind-blowing things and being able to make trips, but they're still confounded by some very small 
items sometimes. So for example, um, LIDAR, which is the primary sensors that they use in autonomous vehicles. If it, if you see the bottom of a Coke can or an aluminum can, it's kind of uh, concave. When LIDAR hits that, that Coke can that's probably not three inches across will look like it's two feet across because of the LIDAR because of the way it reflects that LIDAR. And so that's kind of peculiar there. Or for example, another good example would be like the Army. What they're working on now is what they call leader follower vehicle. So the front one would be manned and then the, the one behind it and the one after that would be, be automated. So kind of like ducklings in a row. So the challenge is the way they build that is they don't want it to hit people or things. So it's built to generally stop. But what that means is, especially think of a rural area, you get a sheep, a goat, a dog that walks out in front of it, it's going to stop. And that means the whole convoy is going to stop. And so what, we've, what we're really challenged with now is not the primary uses, like driving down the interstate. Autonomous vehicles can do that now. But as soon as you get off an off-ramp on the interstate, now you got to deal with some peculiar intersection. Like down where you live, Jason, they love traffic circles. Right. And sometimes even who goes next is a problem on the traffic circle. And so autonomous vehicles struggle with that a little bit because they're, they're built for safety and built to be very conservative. Also, the other problem you've got is humans adapt to machine behavior. And so what we've already seen with autonomous vehicles is like uh, when Waymo was testing them in Mountain View and, and in Silicon Valley is people kind of take advantage of an autonomous car in a way they wouldn't another car. Go to go to sleep, whatever, you know. Yeah. Or like they'll, they'll pull out in front of one because they know it'll stop because it's built to stop. And so it's pretty easy to cut off an autonomous vehicle because they're going to, you know, they're going to stop. Whereas if it were another human, you would probably think twice about just kind of pulling in front of them. And so it's some of these just peculiar uh, conditions that you wouldn't think about unless you're an engineer or deeply immersed in it that actually come up a lot during the day that may only be a small percentage of the driving day, but can, can really stop a vehicle. They don't know what to do. Now, autonomous vehicles, I'm guessing all their tech is in the cloud, I guess, all the driving stuff and all the technology is in the cloud. Mostly. So here's one of the big struggles is, and it, relating to our personal experience as drivers, we've, once we, the first time we drive through an environment, we've got to learn everything about that environment. And the more and more you drive it, especially areas around your house, you know where the crosswalks are. You know, I can take a right turn on red here. You know that um, this is the way this peculiar intersection is set up. So vehicles are kind of the same way. When they go over time, they've got to learn their route and where everything's at in their route. One of the biggest struggles right now is, is the computing power required to keep all of that information in sufficient fidelity to guide a car. So a lot of it is done from the cloud, but one of the problems with the cloud, as we know now, is it's not 100% reliable. That there, You'll go through dead spots. And so the vehicle has to have enough information. That when it hits one of those dead spots, it doesn't just stop in the middle of the road. Uh, so, for example, let's say that uh, you're, you're working with a cell phone tower or a 5G antenna and, and you've got a building between you and it and you hit a dead spot. Well, that means all the autonomous vehicles are going to stop in that dead spot and you can't have that. And so th there is some on the cloud. Uh, a lot of it is kept on the vehicle, needs to be kept locally on the vehicle or a portion of it needs to be. And then the other stressor that we have is just... There's so much data that needs to be moved from the cloud to the car to make that happen is just being able to transfer that much data because every 
second that they go through a driving environment, like a downtown area, it's changing. People are coming in and out. Cars are coming in and out. And so that's really the, where the challenges come from. Is it possible to drive a Thomas vehicle from, we'll say, San Francisco to New York City? If you never got off the interstate? Yeah, probably. You, I mean, technologically, they can do that right now. Like if you, put, if you put it on the interstate in San Francisco and took it all the way to New York, probably. However, so somewhere when you get to Nebraska, the interstate is going to narrow because they're going to have construction. And they're going to have to route that that away. And so that vehicle that traditionally followed lines, now it's going to have to stay between a set of cones. It's going to be a struggle. Or as you're pulling into that, as everybody knows, there's this fun, this stressful, if you're a driver, experience of going from two lanes to one because people have to merge. And you always get that person around the outside. So the problem with autonomous vehicles is they're going to be the conservative one, which means cars are going to keep pulling in front. And so just getting into the line, and then once they get into the line, now they got to go through this kind of serpentine of cones and construction equipment that may not be lined. And so all the things they used to use to navigate may not be there. Okay. And unmanned aerial system, that's just a drone, right? Mm-hmm. So how far has drone technology advanced? Because I remember back in the recent, I mean, not, not maybe 10 years ago, is military drone strikes, you know, all military warfare. And now you got AEO kids flying drones everywhere, right? Like how far mm-hmm. has the drone technology advanced? So I would say is drone technology has by far outpaced the regulations and policy around its use that the, the FAA and others are still trying to catch up. There's things that drones can do now in terms of moving cargo, moving people that, that we, that we still have people in them, not so much because they're needed, but because policy still requires it. And the FAA is still trying to come to grips with under what conditions is this safe? What do they have to have? Um, so for example, uh, drones right now, you can get approval in most areas to operate a drone within what they call line of sight. And so it needs to be below 50, I think 55 pounds and you need to be able within line of sight. Well, line of sight depends on where you're at. If you're in a hilly area, line of sight's not that far. Um, if you're up kind of high, line of sight could be further. And so right now the drones can go further technologically then we can safely and effectively control them. And that's what policy is kind of struggling with is what happens when they go beyond line of sight or who is it? So every airplane that goes through the sky has a transponder that says, I'm here, here's who I am. And they can get information from other airplanes can get information. So it's not just, I'm a plane here on this kind of plane. This is my unique identifier. We don't have that yet for drones, which is something that you're going to have to have if you want to, let's say, do package delivery over distance. You, you got to have, so planes, helicopters, everything else up there in the air, see it and recognize it, and we can figure out who it is. And I just think that privacy is a big thing too. Like, like suppose there's a, a drone delivery company, right? And they go from like, do a delivery for two miles, and they're recording everything they fly over, right? Like, how do you like safeguard that, right? Like, you, you're flying over people's houses, people having barbecue parties, swimming pool parties. People have an argument. Hard things like you know, it flies over a crime, right? And the police ask for that recording, right? Like what? I mean, I'm sure we haven't even figured out any of that stuff out yet. They're they're very much struggling with that because most. So, for example, most of our I, I went to graduate school was an urban planner, familiar with that world. Um, most of our land use planning did not conceive of having to provide privacy from above. And so, let's say there's a drone 50 feet directly above your house question would be, 
Is that a violation of your privacy and your property rights? You know, it depends on where you're at. The airspace laws, how close can they fly? Especially now with, with camera technology, 200 feet. You definitely don't control 200 feet above your house and somebody can look into your backyard. You can probably look into your windows if they get at the right angle from 200 feet. And so not to make people scared, it's just that a policy never really considered that as a concern. And so we're having to grapple with what does this mean? And then like in the future, everyone has a drone, right? Hundreds of thousands of drones in the sky. That's more noise pollution, right? It's like, yeah. So like one of the challenges, you know, we, we've looked at and people, a lot of people are looking at drones for package delivery, which sounds good. Uh, and, and it probably is for certain types of packages. But we, get, we have to remember, where do most of the Amazon packages go? Well, by definition, where the people are in built up areas. And so how are you going to have all these drones navigating in built up areas, moving packages? Also, the other thing is, um, we think all the stuff you order on Amazon it probably doesn't make great sense to be moving a box that's got two pair of cheap sunglasses in it, like I ordered the other day, to deliver that. And so that's the other thing that we're struggling with, is a lot of the stuff we get from Amazon is fairly low value, but high volume. And so how do you move? Drones aren't built for aviation in general, doesn't struggle. And not only that, this might be an example. Like, suppose you order some Amazon right now, the delivery truck driver is going to dip to your house. Now, of course, somebody might steal off your porch. That's a different subject. But if you have a drone, you know, somebody might, you know, just throw a rock at the drone two blocks away and knock it down and steal your package, right? Yeah. Just really where at least the delivery driver is going to get to your house nine or ten, nine thousand times. Or like you, they're going to take it to your apartment building. Okay. Now, where are they going to land? Where are they going to put it? And then when they do land, how are they going to get it from the drone? to the mailbox. Well, somebody's going to have to be there to take it off the drone, put it in the mailbox, or you're going to have to come up with some other system to do that. And so when you look at that kind of what they call the last mile of delivery, it really is a struggle because you got all these peculiarities because every house is a little different. Or like take ground autonomous vehicles for delivery. You've seen a number of companies that have built ones that are relatively small that can go on a sidewalk or like Neuro who's a little bit bigger, but they go on the roads. So imagine they're going to bring a package to your front door. They get to your front door with their steps. Okay. Do we, do they have the ability to climb steps? Well, we, you can build that in, but it costs money. Or like they get there and you're not there. How do you kind of record possession of that? Right. All those kind of things. Or like a, a more practical matter, which is something we worked on with a neighborhood designer a couple of years ago, is with these autonomous vehicles delivering packages, do they operate on the sidewalk with people? Because those are some challenges. Or do they operate in the road with cars? Or do you have a separate lane for them like you do bicycle lanes? That Our whole traffic designs are around segregating different modes of transport for safety. So now, where, are they, where do they operate? Those are the things that municipalities are having to think through. Neighborhood designers are having to think through. Things like that. So between autonomous vehicles, drones, extended reality, and AI, what, what tech ex- excites you the most? So I would say, to me, uh, autonomous ground vehicles, and mainly because, especially when you look at the range of uses and things that they can do, that they are probably more practical and probably going to have an easier time of being adopted than drones are just complicated because it's moving through the air, crowded airspace. Um, there's a lot. But in terms of the range of different ways you can use autonomous ground vehicles, that to me is pretty exciting. And then the, the extended reality where we probably spend most of our time now is very exciting because the idea 
of really experience replicating the environment, but then also experiencing the environment in a new way or with layers of information that we would not have had previously. So like, for example, I'll give you a quick one, uh, augmented reality. And so really what augmented reality is, is imagine a pair of sunglasses where you can see the world as it is, but then between what you see there and what's in your face, then a layer like those sunglasses that brings up information to you. So like, for example, in movies, when we see a person and there's a cloud over their head and what they're thinking, then imagine that kind of... information that can like that can be put within the environment. So when you look at something, now you get information about the last time it was inspected or what it needs needs to be done to it or, or cues like that. Like when you're learning, think about the first time you got your job and you had all these questions about the environment. Where's the light switch? Those are all things in augmented reality that it can cue you and pop up a little message, a little cloud that says, hey, the light switch is over here. So that's pretty exciting. So let's suppose someone wants to get involved in this, right? Like AI, whatever the case be, they need to get a, a certain college degree to go to a coding academy. Like how does someone get a job doing this kind of stuff? So in general, they, so this is kind of back to our talking about reshuffling jobs. You know, the, the majority of the industry is obviously engineers because it is in fact technical. Um, however, there are, there are, are other jobs around the periphery that are required as well. So for example, our role in this, I am not an engineer by trade. And so we usually look at the whole socio-technical system that we don't work on the autonomous vehicle. We work on everything from the edge of that vehicle out to help them understand here's how it's going to operate in the world. And so there was a unique job or role there. We had to explain to people what it was and why they needed it. But once they got it, there's a role there. And so what I would say is um, definitely for AI, that there's usually going to have to be like a boot camp or some sort of academy that you have to do because it's much more of a trade. You don't necessarily need to go to a four-year college, probably shouldn't go to a four-year college. That's not what they're set up for. But in terms of a boot camp or a technical school, we're very much creating a new type of trade when it comes to AI and coding. No, I don't think a lot of people realize that. When you think about software developers, they're going to be like the, the trade to the next generation, right? Because you, you, all these developers put out code making all these technology stuff is basically just another skills trade when you think about it. Yes. And it, it operates much the same way where you get that, uh, you know, you, you start out and you're usually an understudy to somebody because you have to learn the ropes and then you work through. And these folks uh, have all these letters after their name, which kind of signify, here's my trade. Here's what I'm qualified to do. And that's generally what you go on. There are some exceptions of people who are just unbelievably good at coding, never bothered with any of that. But as you see it over time, it's kind of more and more codified into kind of a pipeline. It looks more like a traditional trade. So Matt, your company did a white paper on remote work. And, uh, and one thing that was in there said, um, too much telework can lead to an undesirable outcome. Can you talk about that? Because most people would think the more telework, the better it is. But you're saying that could be lead to undesirable outcomes. Can you talk about that? So what, yeah, absolutely. So let's see, about two years ago, we did a study. Um, for Defense Logistics Agency, and then afterwards did some additional work for other people looking at really telework and where is it valuable, where is it not, or where is it challenged. So one of the big challenges that you see right now, and this kind of fits 
with extended reality. But one of the big challenges that we are going to see more and more as people remote work is just the challenges with transferring knowledge. So think about when you first started your job, there was usually somebody who was there, who was helpful, inviting. And you go walk over to them and say, hey, how do I find this? How do I do that? Um, you can still do that virtually, but, it, but as humans, it does take a little while to rewire. Also, the other thing is, uh, and this very much cuts both ways, but being in the office, you have unplanned interactions sometimes that are massively beneficial for things like innovation, brainstorm. Now, unfortunately, the flip side of that is you have unplanned interactions that take away from your time as well. People come and ask you for stuff, bug you, things like that. And so being out of the office really takes care of, you know, you being bugged. You probably get more solitary time, more focused. We see those benefits consistently. The downside is when it comes to collaboration and team building, it's much more of a struggle to do at distance. Um, what we found and what other researchers found in the study we did is that teams that performed best were ones who had worked together previously in person and then kind of moved out. So they already had that accumulated knowledge of each other and relationship that, that just takes much longer to build virtually. The report, did you look, in, look into how like being an extrovert, introvert affects you doing remote work or anything like that? Yeah. So uh, telework is definitely more preferential. Uh, usually for introverts because they enjoy the solitude and do not appreciate, or shouldn't say appreciate, um, or do not thrive as much on those unplanned interactions. They want to be able to focus on tasks as opposed to extroverts who very much oftentimes live on that interaction. Um, and so what you also see is there are certain type of jobs or more importantly, certain type tasks within jobs that are more given to remote work because they're solitary, they're well-defined, they're measurable. Um, the jobs that we saw that that were ones where you could clearly measure task completion and did you do four of these today or eight uh, did were easier to manage remotely, whereas ones that were more collaborative or more qualitative, harder to manage or measure how much was done in a day were a little bit harder to manage remotely and therefore much more ended on accountability and responsibility of the individuals themselves get it done. I think some managers and bosses are probably better able to handle like in-person work diversity and remote work too, right? Because I mean, for, first off, if you're a bad manager, you're a bad manager. It doesn't matter if you're remote or in-person, right? What are some of the challenges? Like I'm, I'm a manager. I've had Tiffany work for me. We're in the same location and then all of a sudden we're all remote. What kind of challenges do managers have with that? So you just made a very good point, Jason. I should have made it before. It came out during our study. We were told and then it was reinforced. It really... Um, that they kind of looked at it in thirds, that the top third of your workforce are Excel and are going to Excel no matter where they're at, that they're going to figure out a way to succeed. And then, unfortunately, there's always a bottom third. The bottom third are a little more challenged, and they're the people that you're going to end up spending a lot of your time on, kind of the, the Pareto rule, that you end up spending 80% of your time on 20% of your people. It's really where remote work impacts the most is that group in the middle, that middle third, who given the appropriate environment and support can do pretty well. However, when you take away that environment and support, those systems that they work within are not as prepared to improvise and just figure it out as your top third would be. So they can, they're kind of the, the rubber portion. They can go either way. And so those are the ones that you, that you have to work on uh, usually. In terms of managers, biggest struggles that we found is that, um, that 
they had a hard time. The ones who were not able to, either because of the nature of the task or their management style, not be able to measure work progress, really struggled. Because when they were able to measure work progress, then they could have conversations with people about, hey, your productivity needs to increase or you're not getting as much done as I had expected. Here's what I want to see from you. Um, And so the ones who had jobs that could measure that did better. And then also certain leadership styles that were more direct and uh, better able to supervise progress and then more comfortable giving people guidance and then letting them execute and come back and report did better. Also, I have to think like being either the boss or employee, you have to be responsive, right? Because you're, you're working a person, you know, you send somebody an email, they don't answer, you just walk over the desk and you know, ask, hey, what are you working on? Where you send someone email or text or call and they're like, you know, at home and they'll respond like, you know, what can you do, right? I mean, I think you have to be responsive. I think it goes both ways. You're absolutely right. And, and, you know, that came out pretty loud and clear. Big part of that is technology and people's comfort with technology. So uh, what we found is that's kind of one of those implicit requirements that companies sometimes fail to make explicit enough that people are like, okay, I'm working from home. But if they don't know how to use, let's say, Microsoft Teams or Microsoft Zoom or whatever, or excuse me, not Microsoft Zoom, but Zoom, um, or whatever the company's default platforms are, Slack for that matter. Let's say your company has Slack. Well, I can hit dial and talk to somebody in 10 seconds on Slack. I can send a note. Um, But if they're not tech savvy and can't do that either from their computer or phone, then even if they're there physically in person in front doing their job, then the responsiveness piece is definitely degraded. And that's one of the things that they struggle. I also think as a boss, you got to be, what's I'm looking for? I can't think of what I'm looking for. I'll use myself as an example. Whenever someone comes to my team, I tell them like, I'm on 24-7, right? I use Slack a lot to send messages. Make sure you do use the notifications, right? Cut it off. Like, I may have an idea at 11 o'clock at night. I'm going to send it out right now. Of course, people say, oh, you don't do that, you know, but if I don't do it right now, I'm going to forget, right? So I have to do it. I tell everyone, set up your notifications, no notifications time this time, right? Some people don't worry about it. Some people do it, right? So I think you have an expectation reality, expectation management, communication expectation management. Mm-hmm. Like, you tell your people, like, hey, I'll be sending messages all the time, right? Turn your stuff off or, Although the approach should say, you know, like, please don't c- contact me from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. because I'm doing doing their family or my son has a baseball game. I think you have to have great uh, communication, uh, expectation management both ways. You're absolutely right. That um, being able to kind of set what a work day looks like for other people, especially subordinates, being more predictable rather than, you know, Call them. You can call them at seven. Just maybe not expect them to answer, <laughs> or send them a note at seven. Maybe not expect an answer to the next morning. But like you said, being very clear about uh, when I see you a message, I need to hear confirmation back within fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, whatever that is that you expect. Or, or hey, I don't need to hear from you during the workday, but before the end of the workday, I'd like to see an email that summarizes what you got done and what you have planned for tomorrow. Those kind of things. But like you said, it really comes back to clear expectations. And being able to describe what you as a supervisor expect from that person. Yeah. For our company, we, everything's pretty much on Slack, Asana, Evernote. So, but I tell people, like, if I call you, it's, I need to answer. Like, if I call you, it's something very important, right? Because I never call, I never talk on the phone. So if I'm calling mm-hmm. you, it's, I need you to, like, pick up sooner than later. And I, I let everyone know that. Yeah, absolutely. And so just being very explicit about that communication policy is, is a big deal from what we saw from remote work. So. Talk about your company in more detail, like how it got started, you know, mm-hmm. the idea behind it, what's going on with it now, your vision for the company, all, all that kind of material. Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
I got out of the army as an officer in 2007, went, went to graduate school. And after that, um, ended up at the Rand Corporation. And the Rand Corporation does a lot of research for defense. So for the Army, Air Force, special operations, those kind of things. And usually it's strategic studies. And so oftentimes we'll look at these new technologies and say, okay, here's what the impact could be for the, for the various force. But in order to do those studies and do them well, you need to have some input from the users to really understand the environment it's going into and then be able to communicate that to our uh, really intelligent scientists and engineers. And so what happened when I got there is because of my fluency and military background, and then also the ability to really talk to, to engineers, I became that boundary spanner, that translator, if you will, between the end user on one end and the technology builder on the other. And it realized I really enjoyed that role. And so for the seven years I was there, more and more I did that. And then the studies I led uh, over time, the reason why I ended up leading studies on autonomous vehicles is because for tactical uses, you really have to understand the tactical environment and how they're going to use it and understand enough of the technology to figure out where they intersect. And so that was the real inspiration behind Zilter was to take that thing that I very much enjoyed, which was being a boundary spanner between the technology adopter and the technology builder and take that and build a business around it. And so when I set out, I'll be honest, I had not really tested the market to figure out whether that value proposition worked or how it worked. And so the first three years of Zilter was very much trying to value validate that value proposition and better understand under what conditions did it make the best sense? Who were my economic buyers of that kind of service? But that's really very much what Zilter does now. I mean, we have methods and resources and methodologies. We're good at structured analysis around these technologies. But what it really comes back to is trying to take a structured approach to get the voice of the user or the voice of the market and parlay it or structure it in such a way that technology builders can see, here's how I need to build it. And then for technology adopters, they can say, see where the areas are that will have greatest impact benefits for sure. And what was your vision for the company? And so my vision for the company, you know, uh, you, you hear a lot from startup advisors and other people, you shouldn't define your company as the next dot, dot, dot. And so I try not to do that. However, that being said, um, from the very beginning, I envisioned us as not the next IDO because there is an IDO out there, but, but an IDO type company for industrial adoption of technology. Because the hole that we saw in the market and, and feel like that we're serving now is that uh, all sorts of people do work around consumer technologies, like IDO designed the first iPhone. And what, what is IDO? So IDO is probably about 400 people now. Obviously, it's, it's based in, in Mountain View, kind of the technology hub, but they are designers mostly. And so they are um, designers, uh, let's see, design engineers, uh, design research, but it's all around product design, or mostly for technologies. And so user-centered design, a lot of that, but it's really focused primarily on consumer products. I'm sure if you ask them, they'll say well, they do all sorts of things, and they do, but it's primarily consumer products. Well, so we wanted to do the same kind of function for the industrial side, because for me, from a practical background, came from a world there were tasks and processes and jobs that needed to be done in the technology really only good and fruitful to the extent it can help you do that job, right? A little bit different than the product world 
for consumer world. And so for us, that's the role that we've kind of fit into. And that's where I want to continue to move in the future. As I said before, we're kind of at the intersection of, of strategy, analysis, and design. We kind of pull those three things in together. And so um, I want to continue growing that and building on that concept. And so I, what I want to do is, you know, it's easy to look at us and say, oh, you're consultants. But what we really want to do is continue to stay right on that dividing line between the way consulting operates and the way design agencies operate. And so for me, looking forward three years, you know, the perfect world is we, we've got an established company um, that has a continuous stream of interesting projects all around development and adoption of emerging technology um, that crosses different areas. Because for me personally, I have a short attention span. And so having a range of projects and having this kind of uh, design agency feel but also bringing the detailed analysis you would expect of a strategic consultant. Can you talk about the importance of validating your idea? Because I think so many entrepreneurs, like, they have an idea, oh, this is the greatest idea ever. They talk to the mother, the spouse, you know, everyone likes all their best friends. And then they go spend three years of life, they spend lots of money, and then no one buys anything, right? So talk about the importance of validating your idea. Yeah, so the, for us, like many other people, that was a bit of a struggle early on because you say, you know what, this is what I do. This is what I've come to do. I've got this great system for helping people think about technology and how it's going to get adopted. You know this. And we took that to the market. And in some cases, they said, oh, yeah, we get that. Or in other cases, they were like, that's great. But right now, we just need market analysis. Thanks. And so it was very much an evolution. And the biggest part of that was for us is coming up with a general vision of what we want to do, but also being flexible and knowing the market has a bow. And then the, the other big piece of that was as we did grow and found people who very much saw what our value and the value we wanted to deliver and appreciated that, really tried to lean into those relationships. Um, Tailspin Reality Labs was our first client when we started in 2017. It was like $7,500 project. I mean, almost nothing by, te by technology startup standards. And over time, that just consistently grew. But the reason it grew is because uh, they looked at us and looked at what we were good at and wanted to use us or leverage us in a way that was consistent with our bigger vision. Uh, we've had other clients who looked at us and wanted to use us in a much more pedestrian or just give me some analysis way. And we've done that work and learned from that work. But over time, as we've kind of built a client base, it's been people who really, um, their vision for us was consistent with ours. That being said, we had to be open to a little bit of modification as we went out to the market because the market as a group pays for things they see as valuable. So either you can do a better job of explaining how what you do is valuable or be willing to modify what you do a little bit to address the needs they have. So correct me if I'm wrong, but your company started in the Bay Area. You moved up to Seattle recently. Mm -hmm. why, why the move? So um, it was a more practical matter that, uh, that my co-founders based in, Seattle, or, uh, in Mountain View as a much larger company. And then when we got together and founded uh, Zilter in 2017, the idea was that Zilter would be a technology arm of that parent company. And so I, my job or my role for the first two or three years was to grow it go in and go find projects, whether government or commercial, to really grow Zilter. And then what happened is I moved from the East Coast to the West. My wife is originally from the West Coast. We had lived in LA. We had lived in North Carolina. And after about four years in North Carolina, my wife looked at me and said, 
um, I'm moving back to the West Coast. You're more than welcome to come with me. And so um, when I was given that ultimatum, I said, okay, I'm moving to the West Coast. And we looked at all the cities on the West Coast and kind of did process of elimination. And Seattle was the last one. And then we visited and loved it. And the tech scene here, as you know, has been really growing fast over the last five years. And so in many ways, it became an intersection. And once we made that move, decided, you know what, Zilker, because it's to a great extent, an extension of me, really made sense to headquarter it and locate it here in Seattle. Well, Zilto, who's your demographic? Like what, what demographic are you, are, you, are you targeting? Is it enterprise companies with a certain amount of revenues, the number of people or... Mm-hmm. So I would say originally we started with three groups and I think now we've kind of uh, narrowed down to two. And so our, our big two areas were technology builders and technology seekers. Within the technology builder world, it's easier because it's early stage companies, usually series A and series B companies. Because what we're good at is taking really um, detailed analysis providing it to them in a very polished way so that they can go to stakeholders and investors and say, see, we thought through our market. Here's our market. It's well-established, well-thought-through. And it, so that and it, originally, those companies used us to really help them get money because they needed to demonstrate a certain amount of analytical rigor to impress, especially at the Series B level, Series A too. Um, and so that's kind of what, how we've gotten involved there over time. And it, with us as a small company, them as a small company, it made great sense. So that's the technology builder side, Series A, Series B companies, like I said. Technology seeker side, we had kind of two subgroups originally. It was government, because for me, I come from the military and government world and kind of understand the mechanics of that, and uh, enterprise. And so we still do government. We've, we've kind of morphed our approach to government, and we're more particular about the contracts we take in government. Um, but the, in, the third one there, the enterprise one, is one that we uh, don't go after directly because we found out is as a small company, it is extremely hard to get penetration into enterprise companies, partly because you have to have a relationship, but also because they're just more risk averse and they're even willing to spend a little bit more to go after something they know, even if it may not be as good as this, this new company or new thing back to our previous conversation. And so what we've done to get at that third piece, which has worked for us, and I think for some other companies may work well too, is we found our bigger partners we have that needed a strategic analysis as part of their offering and white label what we did. So like when Tailspin goes and sells farmer's insurance or AT&T, a virtual reality solution, they, usually there'll be a segment at the beginning of that where we'll come in and do the strategic analysis and say, okay, here's your priority needs. Here's the order you can build out this solution to kind of meet those needs. And that's allowed us to get access, but not directly. So that's a long way of saying those are our three groups. But that third group, just through trial and error, realized that we couldn't get access directly, at least not now, and have done it through that, that white labeling approach. So how do y'all prove to a potential customer that you can actually do what you're saying you can do? Like, how do you... How you like? How do you show I can do this strategy at Data Analytics? How do you how do you prove that? I mean, because anyone can put anything on the website, right? So how do you go about proving that? So my preferred method of communication has always been show and tell. I love showing people the work we did, and what I've found over time is there's a certain amount of people who are really impressed by that. Absolutely, and say this is great. However, there's a significant portion whose eyes glaze over and don't know what to do with it. And so what we've had to do over time is come up with of a, a layered approach 
so that the people who want that detailed examples of our work get it. But the other people who just want to hear the value proposition and say, okay, let's get started and we can do there. So we usually start pretty high level and have had to get more specific and detailed about here's our value proposition. Here's, here's the ROI we deliver. Here's the areas we have greatest impact. And then from there, say, if you want to see how we've done this for other clients, here's some examples of those. And so using our work as examples to illustrate the value proposition, whereas before I just gave them the work and said, see here, it's awesome, and left it up to them to really look at it and be impressed and figure out how they needed this. What we learned kind of through trial and error is that we very much had to paint that picture for them and then just use our body of work to illustrate it. So I'm a big believer that all customers are not good customers, right? What's your process of disqualifying a customer? Like when you work with someone and like, how do you like disqualify them? They say, hey, you know, we're not a good match, you know, here's the money back or how do you go about doing that? So ironic, ironic that you should ask that. Last Friday, I had that conversation with a particular customer. Um, so what we did or what I did as I started hiring on employees is I made a, a Zilter playbook. And so really, it, and it, it came from another book, another idea. It definitely wasn't the first person to come up with it. But to lay out, here's what our company values are. Here's our considerations when we go and engage because those employees were going to engage with people. And I wanted them to know kind of here's my consideration because sometimes we're going to bypass money or not pursue an opportunity. And so there was a set of criteria. But I would say that for us, it comes back to what's that long-term vision of what we want to be? Does what they do generally agree with that? And then are they willing to use us in ways that we want to be used or utilize our expertise? Like, are they going to use us more as a strategic advisor or more as a tactical analyst, basically, to just grind through stuff? Um, And then the other piece is, be quite honest, this is exactly what it says in the book. Um, We don't don't work with assholes. And so the reason why I say that is, is... and sometimes it's situational. Some people may come off as not a nice person on one call, you catch them the next week and it's different. But what we've really had to draw the line is we're willing to do a pretty broad range of work for people we like or enjoy working with that get us and respect us. But people who don't necessarily respect what we do or just aren't that pleasant to work with in general, we will bypass those because um, that's not necessarily the work we want to do. Uh, the area that has been the biggest challenge for that is government work because we do government work and it's helped us grow and scale our business because usually government work comes in larger increments than uh, commercial work. The challenge with government work for anybody who's done it or hasn't done it is it can turn into a self-licking ice cream cone in that you end up with the government wants certain things and you end up kind of having to optimize your business to meet government requirements. And over time, that's what you become. So we've had to start bypassing some of those government opportunities because we understand, because even though there's money attached, it leads us down a path we don't want to go. On the commercial side, uh, last, fr- last Friday even, I had to send an email to a current client and say, you know, we've been working for you with hourly stuff, but the short, the short or no notice, intense, all-consuming projects that they give us are not really the best use. That they... Um, they're like a short-term high, like a sugar high. Because for two weeks, you work hard. They pay reasonable by the hour. But then at the end of that two weeks, they've taken so much from you emotionally, physically, and otherwise, and you've done no business development. 
And now they go away for three or four months and then they call back with another two week sprint. And so I, I sent them an email and said, nicely, look, our business is scaling. Um, this is probably not the best use of our time. Here's the struggles that we're dealing with and why we're doing this. And I will help you find a replacement if you need it. Well, they responded on Tuesday and said, okay, we understand where you're coming from. You never really laid it out to us like that before. So we're willing to move towards a more like a long-term agreement. And so, but for us, it was a little, for me, it was a little stressful because you're basically inviting the client to go away now. Especially at early stage, you need the money. Yeah, exactly. And so you want the revenue. Then I realized, hey, wait a minute. I can't stack enough $20,000 sprints because it was too, you know, it's $20,000 in two weeks. But the problem is the next one of those would be four or five months away with zero notice. And even though that's really good on a per hour basis or per day basis, it's really hard to stack. It's nearly impossible. You can't build a business on, on those short sprints like that. And luckily they got it and valued us enough. But really what I had to do is put that to the test and say, do you value us enough to go towards a more structured agreement? Or or would the option was they could have said, hey, we, we think you're replaceable and we're going to go replace you. So Matt, I might've read this wrong on your website, but I think I saw a part where, where you like did somebody's pitch, someone's pitch deck for them. Yeah, we do that a fair amount of time. We've done it for a couple of companies. So like, for example, Tailspin, has grown through a couple of funding rounds over the last two or three years. And we've helped them build their decks and we've helped other people build their decks. Uh, we, most of the time, the deck building itself is more kind of the, the window dressing, but it's really trying to figure out what's that strategic narrative. And then more importantly, what's the information that you need to have behind that narrative, either in the deck or in the, in the deck that goes behind the deck, kind of the detailed read book that you need to support your narrative. Because we usually you end up with all this information in your pitch deck. A lot of it will get cut out. However, you almost always have an appendix to that where you've got the detailed charts and tables. And from what we found, a potential investor will look at, it, look at a pitch deck, early stage company, read through it, and then we'll spot check some analysis and want to see it. And they'll probably look to three different places. And after that, if all those three of those look good, then they say, okay, obviously the analysis is here. Your top line narrative sounds good. You got some analysis behind it. It's good sense. And so that's kind of where we've helped people is building that narrative, but more importantly, providing analysis behind that narrative so that it's a little more believable and it looks more like what a VC or somebody would be used to seeing from their own people when it comes to structured or detailed analysis about markets and opportunity. And how has COVID affected your company, if, if any? For us, luckily, not too much. Um, we had always been designed as kind of a, a diffuse company in that um, we most of the people we have are independent. We, so I have a couple of full-time people that are definitely independent. And then I have a pretty broad network of contributors. And so those people were already working remotely. We had just transitioned to Microsoft Teams. And this is not necessarily a pitch for Microsoft Teams. But I guess it is. Microsoft Teams became immensely helpful when we moved to COVID because for us as a agency slash consultancy, we've got 10 projects going on at a time. And before it was Google Sheets and, and G Drive and things like that. Moving to Teams, we were able to track the information specific to a project and organize it. And so every time when I want to know how far we made it on this effort or this initiative, I could go there. And we shared it there and we could collaborate there. It was immensely. And we did that probably a month or two before COVID hit just by chance. And it has been immensely valuable 
to really make sure we have that collaborative space online. But instead of yelling back and forth at the table at each other, then you can now do that through Teams. It's probably not the only way to do it. I mean, our client uses Slack. We use Slack. It's not bad. But I would say in terms of one all-encompassing platform that's allowed us to navigate the challenges of COVID, Microsoft Teams has done it. So how many people are on your team right now? Um, Our core team is three people. And then we've probably got about another 10 people who are about half-time or somewhere thereabout contributors. And then beyond that, there's any number of individual experts that will pull in. What we also have a lot of, especially for an early stage company, we've used strategic partnerships a good bit. So, for example, we have a contract with the Federal Highway Administration to develop training on intelligent transportation systems. It's a five-year contract, but what it requires is traffic engineers and sets of expertise we didn't have. And so we reached out to a company here in the area, and we used their practicing traffic engineers to do that. So we provide the core team for it, but they'll bring in the expertise. We've got partnerships with other companies as well. And so that's kind of how we've come up with a flexible organizational structure that can grow over time, morph over time based on specific needs without trying to hire up a big staff. So I admit I'm aware this wrong, but I'm guessing you can't be a dummy and work for your company. How do you like bring in the right people? How do you find the people talented enough to handle all the stuff you're doing? Wow. That has been a process of trial and error. I mean, looking back now, I could go consult with me three years ago and say, look, you just need to do this, this, and this. But it's been trial and error because one of the challenges for early stage companies is oftentimes the need doesn't converge with with the resource to address it. So you win something or you get an opportunity and you're like, I need somebody now. And so you pull somebody in and then over time you figure out they're not necessarily the best fit for that. Maybe they're not the best fit for where you're going. And so what I would say is it really comes back to knowledge, skills, and abilities, but especially the abilities. That what I've found over time is the people who work best with us, they definitely need a baseline level of intelligence. Generally, a baseline level of education, given what we do, is important. But the real ability is the ability to basically code switch, move from one project to the next, maybe three or four during the course of a day, and really understand that and also be able to interact with clients and understand their needs and meet their needs and and be pretty fluid that way. And those are mostly abilities. So I would say for us, what I've found is knowledge and skills, kind of a baseline thing. You got to have this much. But once you meet that threshold, then really the rest of it is about finding people with the right set of abilities to get where we're going, that are nimble enough and willing to take on new tasks and try new things. I'm guessing so far all your customers have come from word of mouth, organic or referrals. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that we had looked at is how do we improve our SEO and get our name out there on the internet? And, And through the process of doing that, we had a really good strategic marketing consultant that we worked with and she brought it to our attention. You know, all your work has come through word of mouth and what you do is kind of a little bit peculiar, unique. Um, most of your clients you have, once you got them, you did a lot of follow-on work with them. You know, SEO is good, but that's not how you're getting your business now. How about you find more creative ways to lean into word of mouth? And so what we've done is we do some sales commission agreements to really leverage people we know or kind of incentivize them to bring us business based on who they know. We use a white label agreement, like I mentioned before. And then we found other ways, but it really does come down to leveraging as much as we can word of mouth 
because for a small company like us, it's hard to kind of break through on the internet. If you look for technology consultants, you're probably going to get three pages before you get to us. Um, now, if you search Zilter, we're going to come up first. But uh, if you search technology, we certainly won't. And so for us, also, the kind of projects we do are somewhat unique, and we really depend on people who like what we do and see our value. So for us, word of mouth is very much the way. So we've just found new tactics and ways to get as much and leverage as much of that as we can. May I talk about being an entrepreneur, like your entrepreneurial journey, like how it got started? Why do you want to be an entrepreneur? And, and like some of your challenges and like what challenges, joys, pros and cons of just being an entrepreneur? So I'll, t- I'll start by telling you why my wife says I'm an entrepreneur. She says I'm an entrepreneur because I don't like being told what to do. And that's probably true. And um, so obviously the, the upside of being an entrepreneur is, is, you, is you all the time. Um, I think, you know, that's also the stress. That's the downside is you're out there alone. Uh, for me, what I'm most related to is when I was in the Army as an officer, I was in a reconnaissance squadron. And we would go out in small units and go over the hill. And my boss really couldn't see me. And as long as I called back twice a day and let him know I was all right, and there was no smoke coming from where we were at, he assumed everything was good. And I really either instilled in me a sense of autonomy or probably more likely um, it was something that was already there. And I was in a situation, I was like, I like that. And so for me, being an entrepreneur and doing what we do has been like being out there on the edge somewhat, kind of being half in, half out, kind of being like reconnaissance. You're the forward edge. And so for me, that part has been really enjoyable. The range of work that we do is really enjoyable because like I said, for me, I have a fairly short attention span, get bored fairly easy. And then the other thing is, um, you know, you get to work with a range of people. Now that's good and sometimes challenging, right? That we really do work through relationships. And so having, finding people who value what we do has been immensely rewarding. Trying to convince people who don't either get it or don't want to get it, our value obviously is frustrating. Um, all that being said, there are times when uh, entrepreneurship is pretty deeply scary, right? Because you're like, well, you know what? If this deal doesn't come through, I'm not sure what I got here in three months, especially during the early stage. I know early this year, um, around January, we had one contract in and it was before our, our relationship with Tailspin and others expanded. There for a while, you're like, oh, I may have to go back to work and get a, get a, a day job, you know? And so I think that that's the downside as, as an entrepreneur is it is fairly lonely that uh, my employees are looking at me like, hey, well, Hey, boss, they're kind of like, to some extent, like bird, birds or little, little chicklings that, that need to be fed. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory or demeaning way. They're really intelligent and really smart. But the way our company's set up and the way most are early stage is if the founder can't bring in the business, how can you expect anybody else, to, at least initially? And if they can't sell your value proposition, how can you expect one of the employees or one of the project managers to? And so there is a fair amount of pressure there. That being said, uh, it's pretty, I don't know if you call it exhilarating, but immensely rewarding when you start with a value proposition and you look two or three years later and, and it's, it's come to life and you've added reality to it. And then you've got a, now a group of people who value what you do and do well. So as an early stage founder, uh, CEO of a company, you know, you have to do the marketing, the sales, business development, accounting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you personally choose what to focus on each day? Or do you have like a plan each day or just wing it or a combination of both? Or how do you figure it out? Of course, like 
everyone will tell you marketing is most marketing people, new marketing is so important. Sales people, sales is so important. Don't do sales, your company will fail. You got to build a tech, like all these, you know, contradicting and competing in, you know, focus areas. So my biggest asset, I would guess, and struggle in, in, as in this kind of consulting agency role is I really want to make people happy. I like making people happy. I like uh, delivering what they want. The biggest struggle with that on a daily basis means that you're a little more easy to be pulled off track because if somebody calls me and says, I need it, I'm going to say, you know what? I'll get it to you by tomorrow. Somehow. Now, I've already got nine hours of work to do. Um, so that means I get to work second shift and get it done. But you want to make people happy. And so that for me means sometimes I get pulled off track. I will say what has helped with me like on my iPhone, I will keep a list in my notes section of here's the people I need to talk to. Because once the day starts, I've found, you're just kind of knocking out what's next. And the day, once you get, after about, I get started around 6, 6.15. Uh, but after about 7.30, a day takes on life. Oh. Yeah, because stuff comes up you don't know mm-hmm. about. You're going to get a call. You're going to get an email from something. Hey, I heard about your company. Can we talk, you know, do a Zoom call, Teams call, you know, and just, or yeah, this stuff comes up. Exactly. And to me, that's wonderfully exciting. But I also know if it doesn't get done by 7.30, it's probably not going to get done before 5. Because after that, the day has taken on a life of its own. And so as an entrepreneur, I do a lot of work at nights. That's when the real substantive work gets done. Because that's when people aren't emailing you, calling you. You can actually focus in on what you do. Um, So I start with a priority list. I know that there's three or four or five things that got to get done. But almost inevitably, a couple of those aren't going to get done. And they're going to get replaced by other things I wouldn't envision. And that's kind of the exciting part for me is every morning you get up and realize, hey, hey, today could, could change. Or usually it's a, by the week. That When I'm sitting here on Friday, it may look completely different than it did on Monday. And that's pretty exciting. But what it's required is kind of making sure there's a couple of big priorities. What's made it immensely better is now I have a project manager, a number two person who's immensely gifted and makes the trains run on time and does a wonderful job. And so I've been able to let her actually keep track of priorities and say, hey, man, these are some things we got to get done today. And she's able to kind of remind me. But anyway, uh, that's a long way of saying as an entrepreneur, priorities has been a struggle or keeping a calendar. As long as I know I got three big things that have to happen today, I know I at least got to get those three and then everything else is going to kind of fill in the in between. Yeah, I know for me, I'm a big list person. Like, and I have stuff my priority list, right? And like, I never get to, right? I'll, I'll, I'll see it. I got to do this. I can't do it now, right? And then like weeks later, it's still on the list, right? Like, oh, I need to do this, right? But it's, so on your list is really not important, right? And that's always drives me crazy, right? I got to get off, off my list. Well, no, you can't because it's not important enough for your time yet. And the good thing is, uh, you know, if you run out of a list, then you probably run out of business. So uh, you're always going to have a list to some extent. And so for me, it's always this dynamic process of trying to figure out what are the most essential have to get done for my company now. The thing that I struggle with the most is the business development marketing is such a long lead time. And you have so many conversations that don't obviously lead anywhere today. They may in six months and you don't know where they're going to lead and you have to do it. And so getting for me, I've had to become more systematic about business development and really run a funnel, which I would have never thought I would do before of like tracking people through the funnel. And the reason why is now I've got a list and I can go back to the funnel and say, I have not talked to that person in three weeks. I guarantee there's at least one person on there that I couldn't have thought of off the top of my head. I need to follow up with. Yeah. Like I tell people, I think you're the same way as me. Like I tell people, 
I'm not selling candy bars, right? And it's, it's, the sale process is going to be kind of long. I'm not selling candy bars yeah. or t-shirts or sunglasses. It's it's going to take a while. Yeah. And I mean, to me, it's pre- in some ways, it's kind of magical because opportunities come up in ways that you didn't expect. Uh, one of my one of my good friends and advisors on our board calls it the swirl. That it's uh, it's almost like um, a tornado where you build the build up this swirl, knowing that stuff's going to come out, and you don't know if it's going to be a car, a toaster oven, cow. Stuff's going to come out, and so my job is as the founder is to build that swirl around what we do and be prepared for me and as as an organization to catch those things that come out and be systematic about building the swirl. So I've talked about this a little bit. So I, I tell people like, you know, being an entrepreneur is hard, right? And if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're married or like have a significant other, if your spouse does not support you, it's even harder, right? It's almost impossible, right? Can you talk about the importance of your spouse at least being on board and supporting you? Yeah, absolutely. So my wife, and I, I, mean, I wish she could hear this, is a uh, greatest motivator, for sure. Greatest supporter, greatest critic too. And so, you know, um, she's been all of those things kind of moved me along. She's the first one that said, you know what, you're really smart. You need to go, you need, need to go into business for yourself. And so when I first went out there, I was like, okay, I'm smart. Let's go find some business. And then over time you realize that's smart's not enough. You got to have a value proposition, all these other things. And so, but over time, she's been very good about that. Now, obviously there's times when she gets frustrated and she's like, man, we haven't closed, we, and she says we, because honestly it's half hers, uh, haven't closed business anytime recently. What are you doing? What are you going to do to close something this week? And I have to tell her, hey, it's not going to happen this week. But she's, she's good at nudging me and moving me forward. Also, in terms of just pure life logistics, my wife kind of takes care of all these other functions within our household and family that have allowed me to basically throw myself into it and do what needed to be done from an entrepreneurial perspective to grow it. Um, that's part of the stress as an entrepreneur, especially if you've, it's even more stressful, I would say, if you got a supportive spouse, cause you know, they're dependent on you and you really want to succeed for them. And so she's provided me that space and gave me that encouragement. And also at times said, you know what, you need to get more direct, more specific, or these, this pitch deck doesn't look that good, which hurts. But then you're like, okay, what does good look like? So she's been, she's been a great sounding board for that. I think a lot of people, I won't say a mess of a lot of people that start a company, right? And, the, and, and, this, and they don't realize, okay, you have a job, make, we'll say $80,000 there, right? So you quit that job and not only do you have less, $80,000 less, now you're spending money you didn't have, right? So you don't have $80,000 your job, you're spending money each month, uh, run, doing burn money every month, right? Mm-hmm. And so your spouse like, okay, what's going on here, right? You're like, what's going on, you know? Yeah, I, so I was extremely lucky in that my co-founder had a parent company and was able to bring me on full-time to that parent company as we were getting Zilker started. It turned out we really didn't need it because we were lucky. We earned uh, won some contracts early on that basically paid my way and meant we didn't lose money the first year. We didn't make it, but we didn't lose it. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I, to me, the biggest challenge talking to other entrepreneurs or people who want to be entrepreneurs is when do you make that leap? Because for most of us, we're not, we don't have the resources to basically just leave work, hold our breath for six months, hope a good idea comes, and in six months, it'll pick back up. And like me, I, I didn't have, I'm retired military, I got money coming in so I can afford to do this, right? Like, if I had, you know, like, you know, had a regular college, regular job for college, 30 years old, to a mortgage, kid, there's no way I could do this, right? So now that is one thing that you just said that really I wish you'd come up before is really exciting to me. 
I think that needs to, there needs to be more done to help retiring military people become entrepreneurs. And here's why. Um, I used to work with a lot of senior people in the military that were getting ready to retire. And they almost all would talk about, oh, yeah, I think I may go start my own business. The vast majority of them would end up becoming a government contractor, doing something like that. It's not necessarily bad. But you're like, but wait a minute, you said you want to be an entrepreneur. And so the ironic thing about military people is um, they're probably in a better position than anybody else. Because usually if you retire in the military, that means you got a guaranteed pay, a minimum pay. It's not enough to cover all your bills, but it's a minimum. Um, you've got usually health care taken care of. Those are the two things that keep most people from leaving their full-time job. And veterans have that, or retired veterans have those things already. And so it's always kind of um, interested me, kind of baffled me, why you don't see more retired military people going out and starting their own businesses because they're in a perfect position to do it. Yeah, and I, we're both put up Bunko Labs and like most of them just military veterans. I think as myself, I, can, I know other two military retirees in Bunko Labs. I think the challenge is, first of all, you don't know, you don't know. Like I told my story before, when that guy, Mark Rowe, reached out to me about my unfold. Uh, what's a startup? I don't know what a startup yeah. is, right? You just don't know. You don't know, right? And, and part of it too, you know, a lot of people sit in their ways or like, you know, they're, most people retire when they're 40, 45, 50, you know, probably have two kids about to go to college, you know, that kind of stuff, mortgages, you know, that's a channel too. But mainly, I, I don't think most military retirees even know what a startup is or, you know. Yeah, you're right. It is a fairly scary transition. I mean, in fairness, I left the army in 2017 and had a series of went to graduate school and had a, had a, had another job before I got to be in an entrepreneur. So it was 10 years and had a transition. Right. And so had I, in 2007, if you'd asked me if I was going to be sitting here, I wouldn't, or where I'd be sitting now, I wouldn't envision this at all. And I wouldn't have been comfortable at that point. I'd have been like, what? It didn't sound like that, that. That's a good idea. And so you're absolutely right, Jason, that that, that leap from, from the military culture and a culture of relative certainty to the uncertainty, but opportunity of entrepreneurship is real. And I think another thing too, you know, like I said, most people military age, like, you know, military retirees, like 45, maybe 39 to 50 years old. Right. And a lot of startups are like young people, right? 25, 30. And so a lot of them know I was a Sergeant major, I was a Lieutenant Colonel, I was whatever. You know, I'm not going to take direction from this 24-year-old college kid. I think ego gets into it a lot, right? A lot, a lot too, right? Yeah, you see, um, you see that a fair amount because, like you said, they've established a certain status, and almost by definition, startup means you're going back to the bottom. It is a struggle. It's not unlike for me. I'd been in the army three years and then went to West Point and became a plebe, and a plebe was going back to the bottom of the heap, and it was not fun at all. I mean, I made it through, but it was not enjoyable because you feel like you've accumulated a certain level of knowledge, experience. You deserve a certain level of respect. And so very much the same thing with startups because startups, you get told no consistently. You get told your baby's ugly over and over and over. You know, even the best startups do. And so you're right. I don't think a lot of retired military people are used to that anymore or necessarily have, to be honest, the hunger that is required. That's a big one too. I think they don't have the hunger to persevere because it's a fairly uncomfortable existence early on. You got to work hard, right? And even then, you may not make money. There's some risk involved, and so um, I think that the value proposition of being an entrepreneur itself for a lot of military people is a struggle. Yeah, I, when I went to my first stop, I looked off to like learn new skills, learn new stuff, right? Like, well, this stuff is interesting. Like, I didn't know you could do that. I guess I assumed uh, like a company. 
came out of nowhere, right? Like making money, right? I had no idea he'd like get a started fundraise, customer service. I just, it was just intrigued by, it, right? And, I, and I, when I tell you my story, like when I worked for the startup, the person who did a design for us, that did marketing for us, both graduated from high school, my daughter in Korea, right? So that kind of helped out too. I thought we knew him called Santa Corda. So what advice you have for a new entrepreneur? Someone just starting their journey, like, man, I had this great idea. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit my job, whatever the case be. What, what advice do you have for them? I think the first thing you got to do, and it doesn't cost any money, it costs time, is to go find good advisors. People who are sincerely invested in seeing you succeed, because people who are sincerely invested in seeing you succeed are not going to ask for anything, right? They're not going to want to get paid for their time. You got to go find those people because those are the people that can be the trail guide and make it much easier rather than feeling around in the dark trying to find the, the doorknob to find the way out that they can point you in some of those directions. They can make connections. The other thing is, and for me personally, it's, it's always been a struggle is just using your network because sometimes for me, I feel bad. I like, Oh, I'm going to use my network. I'm going to go ring knock. Well, that's why the network's there. And so using that, not just using the network, you got to invest in it. It'll invest in you, but really trying to build relationships first because it'll cut down the learning curve. They can tell you things and introduce you to people that will make it much faster than just going out there, as the Army says, alone and unafraid. So, man, I forgot to ask you this before we start our talk. Do you have any kind of gift or discount to give away? I got the discount of free uh, advice and help and discussions. I'm happy to, just like we were just saying, to entrepreneurs, if it, you know, is to offer knowledge. And then you can take the part of it that is valuable or you think is valuable, move on with it. And the part that's not, leave it. But we work with a lot of early stage companies. We do strategy. We do analysis for early stage companies. So I think we're in a pretty good position of helping people think through that, helping them put together their information and thoughts in a way that they can start to build consensus, build support, financial and otherwise, and help. And the best thing I can give being a service company is our time and happy to give that time to entrepreneurs that want to discuss their idea and to move forward. And having done, went through that journey, more importantly, when people like you, Jason, that, that have went through the journey as well, can provide them some insight uh, from that. More importantly, other people with insight. And can provide your, your social media or email so people can reach out to you? Yeah, yeah. So my email is matt at zilter.com. So it's M-A-T-T at Z-Y-L-T-E-R.com. And so that's my email there. Uh, can find me on LinkedIn as well. I've got on there. But probably the best way is just to email me directly. Um, be happy to just uh, have conversations. Have a lot now. Be happy to have more uh, to me. Uh, especially as busy as we are, that's one way to give back, especially to veterans that are trying to make this transition is to help them think through that. And to our listeners, we'll have the links to his email and everything else on our show notes. You can find the show notes at www.cabinetstatetrouble.com and be sure to share this uh, episode with your friends. So Matt, we'll come to the end of our talk. Can you give us any advice or wisdom on anything you want to talk about? The transition that we're seeing with emerging technologies and workforce in the future my biggest concern is not about technology. The technology is going to progress. My biggest concern is how are we taking care of the significant portion of our population that is going to be disenfranchised? Not intentionally, but they're going to be disenfranchised. 
because we're going to move on. So what are we doing with them? Like through tech, through tech schools and trade programs. And what are the rungs on the ladder of social mobility that we're going to give people? Because right now, I would argue from my experience, but talking to other people and looking around that we have not done a good enough job of giving people a way up. The greatest thing about the military, and I'm sure Jason, you'd say the same thing, is that military is a social ladder. It provides opportunities that you can't get otherwise. And so for me, I kind of got this one, 2% chance of being able to join the army at 17, get to West Point, go to graduate school from the army and move on from there. I don't know. And sorry, for me, that's emotional. I don't know that we're doing a good enough job making that consistent. You can't look at that and say that's a dependable path to grow for people that want to grow. So we really got to do a good job of do a much better job of making sure people that are motivated have a way to grow in our society. And we could probably do another two-hour talk just on that, right? Yeah. Hey, man, so thanks for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you, and remember to be great every day. You got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up. You got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up.